I'm Billy. I'm Drew. And this is Pilot Club. Welcome back. We've been kind of recording quite irregularly lately, haven't we? Yeah, a little, little irregular, but um, there's lots, still lots of shows coming out, so we've got to, you know, we've got to do do the good work. Yeah, and this week it actually wasn't due to a dearth of shows. It was partly because we had a lot to watch. So two of the shows we, well, one of the shows we watched this week was movie length, like an hour and forty minutes. Yeah, and the others were all at least an hour. So that's that's just one of the quirks this week. There was a, quite a lot to watch. They were. Not they all. Were. Of, not all of it good. <laughs> well, we'll come to that. I feel like this is a little re- bit. This is a real rocks and diamonds week. <laughs> like the rocks are so bad, like so hard, and the diamonds are so shiny. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm very interested to hear what yeah. you think. Let's about start some with of these. let's start with a rock. <laughs> well, well, we're we're starting with uh, Ahsoka. Hmm. This is the latest series from the the Star Wars expanded universe. So Star Wars Ahsoka, as it goes, is an American TV miniseries. It's created and written by Dave Filoni for Disney Plus, um, and it's actually a spin-off from The Mandalorian. It takes place in that same time frame there, and part of the broader Star Wars universe that broadly occurs after the events of Return of the Jedi. I think Ahsoka first appears like in Attack of the Clones, like she appears as a child, like quite early on. Yeah, so um, Rosario Dawson, who mm. is the, the lead actress, plays Ahsoka Tano. So she appeared uh, most recently, well, in this in this form, in The Mandalorian Season 2. Mm-hmm. But the character was actually created for the animated series Star Wars The yep. Clone Wars. Um, so this spin-off has been in the works for quite a while. Uh, Dave Filoni, who's been involved as in you know directing and writing a lot of these Star Wars spin-offs and was the executive producer for The Clone Wars um, has you know been involved since as early as 2020 um, but slowly this has been this has been assembled and at the moment as it stands the premise which is set up pretty efficiently through the the scrolling title sequence mm-hmm. uh, you know you know jettisons us into a world where uh, the the, the empire has fallen, and there is a kind of temporary, uh, a temporary lull in in this particular universe. Despite this fact, uh, and the you know the the disbanding of the Jedi forces, Ahsoka is called to respond to an emerging threat in the galaxy. So, in particular where we, we're sort of uh, introduced to these characters through a little little preamble in which we see uh, the interception of two former Jedi who are effectively conducting a heist to, uh, to rescue um, Morgan Elspeth, who previously a previous prisoner of Asako Tano. I couldn't get my head around that. So were they... Were they former Jedi or were they bad guys posing as Jedi? Former Jedi, So they're yeah. Jedi who've gone to whatever, gone rogue. whatever remains of the dark gone side. Gone rogue one. Okay. So, uh, Elspeth... <laughs> something, something dark side. <laughs> so, uh, we, we later learned from Elspeth that, um, that Ahsoka is searching for Grand Admiral Thrawn, who was previously defeated by Ezra Bridger. So, 
Ahsoka ultimately needs to discover a map to the location of Thrawn. This is amazing. Just Wikipedia <laughs> reading, mate, by the way. Just it's like, all, it's all great. from the top of my head. Oh, it's great. This it's, is just, it's, it's all recall. This is like Wikipedia. It's all recall. This is Wikipedia it's club. Like up there. Did you watch it? <laughs> I'm just wondering. Up there in my brain. Because there's one show all this week. I'm, I'm wondering if you watched it. Another show I'm suspecting you might not all have watched. the neurons are firing. Yeah, maybe. yeah, right. The neurons are firing. You've got some mental kind of Jedi, Jedi stuff <laughs> going on. Mental Jedi gymnastics. So they eventually discover the map. But then uh, Ahsoka is eventually uh, enlisted by General Hera uh, Sindola to to seek a young apprentice by Sindola. the name of Sabine Wren. Sindola was Greenhead? <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, no. She, she was one with the green head. Oh, yeah, she was. Greenhead. <laughs> well, I did. I was, I was, Colloquially I was known as Greenhead. <laughs> so she eventually discovers Sabine Wren. Do you know, you know Sindola, right? Of course. I feel like there's some Sindola... Knowledge here that's missing. Okay, keep so, going. So Sabine uh, yep. is a younger, a younger apprentice, and her former Padawan. Uh, so she she needs to enlist her help uh, in unlocking the map. Mm-hmm. But just as she does this, Billy, she's confronted by Shin, who steals the map and stabs Ren during a duel. So we end in this cliffhanger, and welcome to the world of Ahsoka. So I've I've got a question for you. D- did you watch it? Because it just feels like Wikipedia. <laughs> of course I did. So what what, what, did. what did you think? What did you think of it? Uh, look, I I thought this was this was you know it was a solid if unspectacular entry into the the Star Wars expanded universe mm. canon. Um, uh, obviously, like like all of these series, the production values are, are high. The world building is is fairly effective, and having Rosario Dawson as an anchor. I think is is quite effective. I feel like see here's what I think's going on here. I feel like you're talking it up <laughs> to try and provoke me into saying how much I disliked it, which I did, and we'll come on to that. But I, I'm I'm not sure about this. I'm not sure that you you enjoyed it as much as you're saying. Well, I thought it was I thought it was middling. Yep. Um, and innocuous. Yep. Um, and <laughs> and look, the pacing was a little sluggish. For a, for a like, Star Wars, it's like a Chantel Ackerman film. <laughs> for a Star Meet Wars, Star Wars, Star Wars entry. Um, but well, let, I, you obviously got some things to to get off your chest. Well, look, so let's, let's, I'll give you the soapbox. Let, 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 let's put it in context. And you know, before I get to my rant, let's just be a little <laughs> bit moderate. We've done um, well, we've done a couple of these new Star have, Wars shows. We so we did Obi Wan and Andor. Yeah. And both of those, I thought, had a had a pretty good signature. Like Andor had a interesting vision of the empire as a kind of corporate bureaucracy rather than a you know just you know one-dimensional evil empire and i actually kind of like the melancholy of obi-wan all those huge kind of desert landscapes this here's, here's where i think the potential lies in this one like i feel like this one is almost going for a kind of boys from brazil kind of narrative have you have you seen that film the 70s I have not. but the premise is it's about nazi hunters after world war 2 right so a gang of nazi hunters gets together and basically hunt or a film like app pupil because the premise here right is that the you know, the empire is defeated there's one last kind of figurehead of the empire thrawn who's escaped and the characters are kind of collaborating to to find him right so it's got that like nazi hunting kind of vibe to it on the surface that's really interesting but I just, the execution, I mean, I watched this like about 10 o'clock one night. I remember like, just, I could not believe how boring it was. Like it was like existential boredom. And I even had, like, had a little micro sleep and I woke up and I couldn't believe it was still going. So, I mean, I, like, 
the original Star Wars, I mean, and not to be like that guy who's like, I'll never watch it on all female Ghostbusters. Like, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm not especially attached. No, you're part of the, the go woke, go broke crowd. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, wow. <laughs> so look, uh, yeah, I'm, so I, I'm not. I'm not trying to be that guy. I mean, I'm, I'm not particularly attached to Star Wars, right? It's not a franchise I'm that into. But the original films, like they were based on Saturday morning serials. Like they were pulpy, yeah. they were perky, yeah. they were action packed, they were episodic. Like this, this is so slow. Like it is. Like, it is it, quite it, solemn. It, it, it could be leavened with a bit of comedy. Yeah, I mean, I think you're taking a moderate middle ground to try and provoke <laughs> me further. I mean, this is like slow cinema. Like, nothing happens. And there are just scenes, like, scenes where, like, for minutes at a time, a character would just look at something. So I don't say this in the spirit of being a huge fanboy of the original, but at least so they had pacing. Like, this is... And I think you said to me when we're talking about it, we don't normally talk about shows before the podcast, but this one we kind of alluded to, and you said, you know, it, it reflects that original Star Wars demographic, or maybe maybe even the second generation Star Wars demographic, growing up and being more acclimatised to a kind of middle age, like a Pidian kind of pacing. Yeah. But just, I just, yeah. it, it, it is so solemn, it is so serious, and it is so, yeah, like just so tedious. Like it's like watching paint dry. And mm. even the action scenes kind of partake of that. Like there's some interesting stuff. I mean, I guess that scene with the ex-Jedis at the beginning sets a platform for an episode where there's some quite interesting stuff done with lightsabers, some unusual lightsaber work, if you will. But even yeah. that is, it is so flat, like it's such an airbrushed corporate aesthetic. And look, the diversity stuff, because it's, you know, it's three female leads, is fantastic. And, and at this time, more than ever, I mean, you know, Disney, the fact of Disney creating these diverse series is now pitting it directly against Ron DeSantis, right? So, you know, the reason that Disney has moved out of Florida or moved its next big base out of Florida is because of Ron DeSantis's, you know, inverted commas, anti-work agenda. So, like, there is something radical about this Disney diversity, like. But mm. it just, I wish it had a more, you know, these three female characters, they deserve charisma. Like, they deserve a good story. They deserve, like, three-dimensionality. Like, it is just, it is so cookie-cutter and boring. Like, I mean, even Obi-Wan, I thought, was heading in that direction, but this is just... I, uh, Obi-Wan did have some interesting spaces, like the, yeah, the, so, so this, the this canteen. Is, this is the, completely devoid of that. I mean, all the cityscapes feel generic. There's there's a kind of highway chase that, I mean, that could be like, you know, that could be exurban Dallas. Yeah. <laughs> exurban Dallas would be better. So I just... I, I, just I have to say, like, despite all these reservations, I do find Star Wars is, you might, an IP that lends itself to this, this medium. Hmm. Uh, because it is, you know, quite peripatetic, um, you jump from one world to another. Um, it, you know, obviously, just from the very inception of it as well, it lent itself to expansion to vignettes on different planets. Well, um, sure. I mean, so I, I, I do like. You know, I don't think any of the Star Wars series have really, you know, lived up to the promise. Obviously, in, embedded in the in the conception of it, but all of these three series, I found, I found very watchable. Um, mm. Just because the sprawling nature of the universe lends itself to this kind of sprawling nature, you know, amorphous nature of the television media. Well, I think this is the paradox, right? Like another way of putting what I was saying earlier about the original films is they were based on Saturday morning serials. Like they were based on a highly serial, serialised form of cinema. You know, like Indiana Jones, like five minute shorts that would be shown every week mm. almost. But so, that's less necessary in this, this no, but, amorphous age of streaming. But this is this is the paradox, right? That That... The brilliance of the series originally comes from that seriality. The and formal yet, discipline. Yeah, yeah. And yet in the, the transition to the serialised format of, you know, contemporary streaming television, I think hasn't really 
worked, I think. Well, look, that's a big call. These are hugely popular shows like Mandalorian, but I think actually, like, they don't preserve that playful seriality that was the, the inception point of the franchise in the, the first Man- place. I think the Mandalorian does to a much greater extent. I mean, that's basically a space western. You know, each yeah. each episode very tight. Have you, have you watched minutes. a whole season of it though? I, I've, I watched the first season. Yeah, I, and thought, I, think... I thought that got pretty sluggish, like by the end. Okay, well, I, I think that pretty look. I mean, it definitely lives up to it, the yeah. kind of it embodies that kind of the genre, the playfulness with genre in that uh, in the in the original. Yeah, so I think it's, it's definitely the most successful. Yeah, I think without having seen a, a great deal of Andor. And look, I, I don't want to be old man Shakespeare. I mean, obviously Mandalorian is huge. Obviously, there's a market for it, and I don't want to be like, well, it's very popular, but the kids don't understand seriality. <laughs> I just find them dull. Like, and I, and you know, and maybe I'm not the intended audience. And this one in particular, I just found interminable like it, it, it the ironically although the inception point of the whole franchise is kind of saturday morning serials this just felt to me like the beginning of a series that would consist of a succession of slow films rather than <laughs> anything with any serial momentum and look i'm prepared to like i'm, I'm not the intended audience yeah you know? so like yeah. well, i'm not the, the interesting question is what is the intended audience here because I, I feel like there is a slight um demographic divide in this in this series so the, the fact that it's a you know master and apprentice that's paralleled in Ahsoka and and her offsider and obviously the the Empire representatives as well suggest that this is also like an attempt to be a four quadrant televisions mm. television show you know unify generations you know the gen gen uh, millennials mm. and gen Zs and their children and so forth so um, it that's sort of embedded in this narrative isn't it that they're, they're trying to unify different mm. Star Wars generations and, mm. and fandoms um, but I, I I think partly because of that, this sort of does does sit somewhere in the middle. It's not quite adult enough. It's not quite cartoonish enough. Mm. It's it's sort of an uncanny valley in terms of and that's, entertainment. And that's a nice way to put it. I mean, it does occupy that kind of void between different generations and quite literally sometimes. Like there are scenes when just all of a sudden there's empty space. Yeah. Just, like there's a character sitting in a room and nothing's happening. I mean, I still think like the best part of it, like the most promising thing is that Nazi hunting analogy. Like, it's like that kind of subgenre of films, of thrillers, about people living next door to a Nazi or people hunting down a Nazi, and especially at the moment when neo-Nazism is on the rise. Like, the Empire is basically a fascist structure with Darth Vader at its head. So there's this sense that now we're now in a post-Empire phase, a post-Imperial phase, but there are still these figureheads of it out there in the universe, and the, the key is to kind of track them down. That's really interesting. I mean, that to me is the narrative propulsion of this but it's kind of i don't know like it's it's displaced onto a kind of really generic ya narrative at times like obviously star wars as a as a as a property um was was already quite hybrid in its nature you know Mm. combined you know sci-fi western serials um but also the arthurian legend Mm. element as well Mm. that's the that's the the component that really stood out for me in this series Mm. and i think that was also a sense that it was something that was sort of really under, undergirding here mm. um, in, a, in a few different ways. Mm. I think firstly, the the ex-Jedis as well, like looked a lot like knights. Mm-hmm. You know, they had like almost chainmail armor shields, mm-hmm. you know, the sword play, obviously with the, the lightsabers, uh, but also the sort of the quest narrative here had a bit of a, you know, grail mm. legend yeah, sure. vibe and, and the apprenticeship as mm. well had that... Um, it's like you know, sword in the stone. I guess there's a scene too, which narrative. takes the scene which takes place on a in a kind of huge ancient dais like structure, like yeah. a fight in this kind of ruins of a kind the of classical thing, yeah, civilization. It looks, it looks like modeled on the temple of, of Karnak yeah. in Egypt. 
all, you know, all I'm thinking like the round table. Yeah, like yeah. Kind of there's there's a lot of that, that yeah, classical I can kind that. of you know iconography mm. strewn all the way here, sort of you know ruined empires and the sure. vestiges of them, and mm. you know trying to build something in the wake of that, out of that mm. detritus of empire. Um, so that that so, came through, and obviously it's a nice comparison to the other show that we whew, but I was say, at. <laughs> but yeah, so that that makes sense, like conceptually to me. Like it's like mm. an allegory, almost of trying to kind of create a series from the ruined empire of the franchise. Yeah. I just, I just found it boring. Like I just found like at, just at the basic level of execution, I just found it, I just found it tedious. And it felt like a kind of exercise in box ticking rather than. I felt inert. Like it felt like yeah. I was like watching. I don't know. Like I think this is undoubtedly the weakest of yeah. the Star Wars TV series mm. that we pro- we didn't do the Book of Boba Fett, which I no. which I I know got pretty dire reviews, but mm. this is certainly the weakest of Obi Wan. Mm. And like Man- I said, I mean, just Man- to clarify, like I'm not at all, I'm pro woke. Like I mean, there is something you know more and more like this Disney commitment to diversity is you know it's like it's pitting itself against a possible future president of the United States in very overt ways. So like all that stuff is great. Just the characters deserve charisma, yeah, and a good story and an expansive part of the universe. So like, oh yeah, like I, I mean, I love the idea of kind of world building. I mean, at the moment, you know, you and I are watching all of the kind of Silence of the Lambs films, and it's extraordinary to see how each one builds the world in a different way with each director. So amazing world building is fantastic. Um, I just, it's yeah, maybe it's just not my thing as well. Like, and I, I can totally get that. Yeah, look, yeah. I, I think of all the Star Wars. Uh, series. This is the one I'm most on the fence on. Yep. So I'd probably say um, I'm I'm you know un you know undecided. Mm. I mean I'm a swing voter. Okay. If you will. I'm a hard out. <laughs> I'm, I'm a hard out. Okay. On to our second show this week. Um, this is a HBO documentary of an unusual kind. Um, from the outset, the way I'd kind of describe is we've talked how there's been this movement in television over the last five years or so of what outlining what we call the scammer industrial complex so this sense that well firstly this fixation on iconic scams of the last decade almost periodizing the 2010s in terms of scams but also this growing disenchantment with the figure of the entrepreneur and this kind of sense of the entrepreneur as being a different kind of scam artist right and stories like we work uh, sorry document shows like WeWork where it, it's kind of both at the same time, like mm. a brilliant entrepreneur, but also just a, a petty scam artist. So this to me is kind of like a prelude to that. It's like a myth of origins for that. The show Telemarketers is, it's, it's an interesting genesis. So it's about the biggest telemarketing scam in American history, the Civic Development Group, who in the, I guess, mid, from about the mid 2000s to the mid 2010s, um, just scammed you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars from using call centres that basically posed as police and firefighting charities mm. and you know, went to increasingly like, extraordinary lengths to kind of dupe their customers. What makes this so interesting is that the two series creators, Adam Barla Lau and Sam Lippman Stern, actually worked for Civic Development Group in yeah. 2006 and 2007 and cottoned on pretty quickly that there was something weird going on at the company. So, started well, while they were like, you know, what, late teens, early 20s, started actually filming what was happening there. Yes. And put together a kind of basically like a real inverted commas real version of the office in yes. which they just showed like a verite documentary about what happened. And, you know, What's that? That in itself is interesting. But what's also interesting, I guess, as a period piece, is that not only was this permitted, but to some extent, it was encouraged by the company. Mm. Insofar as 
I mean, the company, it seems, kind of realised that, that they needed a certain kind of aggressive extrovert to do these calls, and they basically facilitated whatever they wanted to do, turned the call centre into a kind of anarchic party space yeah. just to keep the calls going. Like there's one character, for example, who would do heroin and come in and just do call after call. Yes. Or characters who would, you know, you know, be kind of raving and dancing one minute and then calling the next. So it's, it's an extraordinary story of this um, civic development group. It's extraordinary that we have the footage, but it's also an extraordinary insight into the way in which, like, the workplace has changed and the way in which all kinds of things around media and the workplace has changed. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's like the documentary takes place in, like, the last generation before Twitter at a time when that sense of anything being shareable anymore, or coming back to haunt you, yeah. or of, I don't really believe in cancel culture, but of you know, consequence culture, yes. um, was, was not quite on the horizon yet. And when th- th- there was that kind of the naivety of the YouTube generation. Yes. So there's that sense of kind of immediacy and kind of hypermediation, but without necessarily consequences. So, you know, when the main character is filming this stuff, it's not just for posterity. He uploads it every week to a yes. YouTube channel. This, so it's, this, like, so it's, like, a live, it's yeah. like a live week-by-week YouTube text that now, 15 years after the fact, has been compiled into an HBO documentary. Is yeah. how you describe it, right? I describe this almost as the first wave exhibitionist yes. YouTube. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so, but, yes, but with, yeah, exactly, with all the lovely kind of naivety that that entails. So it's an extraordinary, I mean... Something else that's, I mean, it's an extraordinary period piece about 2007 as well. I mean, it makes you like, so just recently, not recently, like about a year ago, we kind of watched, I watched all of Gossip Girl and we talked about the podcast and that also came out, I think, in 07. Mm. And it just, it captures how much of that, that, that will always feel like a pivotal period for me because it's the first year I started my PhD as a postgrad. Um, it's the year I got Facebook, a whole lot of things happened that year, but it, in retrospect, it feels like a turning point. And the way Gossip Girl kind of periodizes it is like this is the end of it. This is like the last great burst of the flip phone generation. Mm. Something that's interesting here is like it's like this is like the, it feels like the last time that the landline can be fully weaponized. Yes, because the whole point <laughs> of telemarketing is to trap people on a landline. Yes. So something that's extraordinary about this documentary is that you know they go through. And I actually kind of wanted more of this, but they go through all the different protocols for keeping people on the line. Yeah. And you know, very dark. So if someone mentions there's been a death in the family or that they're impoverished, all these different cues and things to say. So the whole thing is about keeping people on a landline, trapped in that landline until they give money in a way that I think is just not possible in the same way with a mobile phone. No. Where you can go in and out of reception, you can hang up. Like that feeling, I mean, I remember from high school and early uni days, you know, if you're having a conversation with a family member or an older person, like, you know, you need to leave the phone. It can be harder to leave. Not I love my family, but, you know, with an older family member, it can be harder to leave a conversation if you've got to get somewhere yeah. on a landline. So all those things, like this, this end of, it's like the last time that the landlines are weaponized you know, I guess in American culture in this way, this kind of, this apotheosis of the YouTube generation, all of it I thought was just absolutely extraordinary, you know, above and beyond the story. But the story makes it even better. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. What, what, what did you think? Yeah, look, I, I think this is this is just a great story. Amazing. You know, they say, yeah. uh, you know, with documentaries, so much, it's, you know, so much of it is serendipity. Mm. And there's just extraordinary serendipity here mm. um, as well. But it's it's... It's it's a story that just the, the more layers that, that are uncovered, the more interesting it gets. Mm. And the hook at the end of this mm. of this pilot is, is incredible. Extraordinary. Um, so absolutely enormous like you know, enormous luck in, in, in getting this story. But also there's a craft in the way mm. it's put together. And um, this is tr- obviously 
one of the more unusual strands of true crime, given it's it's um, it is partly exposing a scam, but it's it's also a you know, piece of detective work. Mm. Um, it's uh, you know investigate investigation, but um, it's also like a really um, wonderful, rich character study mm. of the the personalities who work in this call center, especially something that you know the, the closest thing to approaching. Um, to a protagonist who's Sam Lippenstern, um, ex-convict, um, you know, drug user, hedonist, um, but also like a hero in his own right, is basically supporting well, his it, disabled wife. I think is is he? I, I thought his name was Pat Pespi or whatever it is. I think. Oh think, yes, my apologies. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, Pat Pespi. I feel like Pat Pespi is like the kind of the Michael Scott character. And Sam, the kind of the director, is a bit like the kind of Jim character, except without Jim's snarkiness. He's like an authentic Jim. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So and, and and Pat, we don't see in the present, do we? I, I'm not no. sure. Pat, I wonder if Pat is still with us. Like yeah. he, he doesn't appear in, in any kind of present incarnation. Yes. So, so I think there's a, there's an interesting parallel drawn between, obviously, the exploitative nature of this, um, mm. you know, or the the ends of this this company. But also the exploitation occurring in the call center itself. Mm. So there's a nice parallel between you know keeping the customers on the line and keeping the callers on the line. Yes, yes. So trapping both. Trapping both. Both are trapped in this both landline. Are, both are, are trapped. Yeah. In, you know, a grinding cycle of, mm. of, of you know poverty. This mm. is really the poor targeting the poor. Mm. Um, but and you know the the ill-informed targeting the ill-informed. Mm. Um, but also because there's no, they don't get paid commission. Um, you know, how do they buy into this environment? You know, partly it's desperation, but partly it's creating, it is deliberately cultivating, um, you know, something approaching a kind of, you know, criminal space, a space mm. where, you know, crime is, is openly permitted. Mm. Um, but also to, like... To keep these people, you know, keep these people calling or just keep them addicted um, to, to making those calls. But also like, I mean, and I don't, I'm not giving the company credit for this exactly, but something I found quite beautiful about this, I mean, like we live in a time, I think, where, you know, so, you know, again, not to be old man shakes fist a cloud, but so often digital media can cut against a public sphere, right? Whereas yeah. this moment like in the kind of mid-2000s where digital media almost augments the public sphere in extraordinary ways. And like, that, I feel like that happens here. So... You know, there's something very moving about, like, you know, crazy stuff happens, wacky stuff happens, criminal stuff happens. There's something very moving about seeing the public sphere that does emerge and the community in these call centres because they they make a point, right, that the company deliberately puts them in these areas that are completely impoverished. There's no industrial employment. There's no... A lot of these people would be working in industrial spaces. You know, and they show... There's some amazing establishing shots of where there are and they're all places like you know Raritan Parkway Centre like these places that are just the antithesis of a public of public amenities and yet you know and again I'm not really giving the company credit for this because it's to their interest and it's almost a bit of a byproduct or epiphenomenon of what they're doing but the way in which this public sphere emerges in and through media like it's very beautiful and and very moving and again the YouTube stuff, the YouTube videos are an integral part of that. It's something that the community watch together. Yeah. It's something that they share. Like there's something very moving about seeing that in a way that I think like I don't think that Twitter creates public space in quite the same way as YouTube did at that moment. Yeah. Well, I think they, they like, draw an interesting continuity here between those kind of slacker comedies absolutely. with handheld VHS absolutely. Um, cameras. Like a link later. Yeah. Yeah. Especially... especially um, slacker. Slacker yep. and and 
clerks. Yes, um, I was going to say absolutely yeah. clerks. Absolutely, yeah. So, and I think they they yeah they construct a, a continuity between that and the early the early generation of of YouTube in particular, yeah, which was and, broadcast yourself. It was a democratizing absolutely. medium that was that was indie. Yep. Like there was a sense that it was it was continuous with with the independent cinema. That, exactly, um, that's a really good way to put it. Yeah, you know, probably launched a lot of filmmakers too. So mm. there's an, there's an initial u- utopian premise mm. in in these these social media technologies, mm. um, and I do remember like how liberating it was to actually put videos up on YouTube and suddenly to become a broadcaster. Like mm. it did democratize the broadcasting space. So that is, I think, a nice continuity that's mm. that's established here. Um, and consistent with that as well, um, and those '90s sort of offbeat slacker comedies, mm. which are you know definitely knowingly independent and, and self-consciously oppositional. Mm. There's something wonderful about the way the, the slackers here, um, you know, take their anti-establishment views to the next level and actually try to take down, mm. try to take down the man. Um, and you think about those, you know, those comedies too. Like they've got, in some ways, a kind of. They're in, they're in a paradoxical situation, like, like a film like Clerks or like Slacker. I mean, they're films that are going to be, to some extent, shown and distributed. Like it's like that mainstream indie thing, right, within a mainstream format, but they're still oppositional despite it. Yeah. And that that is like the people here who, you know, eventually they're trying to take down the company. This is also like, you know, 15 years after the fact. At the time, they're kind of opposing it, but also kind of dependent on it. Yeah. So it's that, that, that complexity. It reminds me of the kind of the Clerks catchphrase like just because they serve you doesn't mean they like you yes and that's that's the kind of vibe that you get here yes yes i think it's really interesting mm. I, as a depiction of of you know exploitative workplaces mm. um and the ambivalence of the people who work in mm. them um but also just the you know, this grinding cycle of of you know post-industrial poverty mm. um and the prison industrial complex and the way that the way it, it ramifies in the labor force. I was going to say, I think one thing these, um, these, I guess, scammer industrial complex techs are very skeptical about is what, when we were at high school, it was called the quaternary sector. So yeah. things like management consulting, all that kind of stuff. And it's interesting here that, you know, part of what happens in the company, they almost become like a vulgar consultancy class. Yeah. So they start off as telemarketers and they're rebranded as, I've written down the phrase, they're rebranded as professional management consultants. <laughs> yeah. So you kind of see like, you see this kind of, the way it presents it is that this public, this kind of professional public sphere, I guess, and post-industrial public sphere is encroached upon by this consultancy nomenclature. Yeah. Like it is, I just said that, that yeah. that's an interesting, it's like in that sense, it's moving towards that object of yeah. scepticism in these texts, which is yeah, that, that consultancy rhetoric. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's that's certainly, you know, the the erosion of of, of language and yes. uh, the performative nature of, yeah. of their job. Um, but I yeah, I think also, you know, the sense that people who have uh, prison records are excluded from the workplace. Yes, you're right, you're in right. This, in this broader sort of policy sense. And the big revelation at the end of this, suggesting that there is a broader institutional buy-in yes. to this scam, I think reinforces that sense right. that you know the prison industrial complex does furnish uh, an easily exploitable mm. um, you know underclass. Mm. Um, well, it, and it's a, we talk about the prison industrial complex. It's very literal here, isn't it? Like it's yeah. people who've left many left prison, can't find job in industry in their area. So you know we, we've, they can't go back to prison. They can't get an industry. So this provides a third space. Yeah. 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 And they're the only people who will hire them, people yeah, yeah. with their criminal records. So um, there's, yeah, like like the best true crime documentaries, it proceeds, you know, mm. um, centrifugally. Yes. You know, out to the, you know, 
um, or centri- the, centri- centripetally, centripetally. Yes, yes, centripetally. yes that's right. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. Yes, to the, you know these you know locus loci of power. Can I say I think I think it's hard to make white collar crime documentaries work because either they can be just very dry, mm. or they can be they can be kind of snazzy in a way that almost makes the perpetrator seem exotic mm. and kind of allure. They, they can buy into that entrepreneur kind of narrative. Whereas this, this treads a really good ground. Like yeah. I think this is the best white collar true crime. I mean, I think we've seen, right, in terms yes, of fraud, definitely. in terms of, yeah. Definitely. I, I, I loved it. I hadn't heard of it till you recommended it last yeah. week. It's, I, it, I, th- I found this funny. I found it uh, entertaining and yeah, provocative. And like, don't you think, too, it is so similar in spirit to The Office. Like, we rewatched, Colin and I rewatched that during the pandemic, actually. And, like, just rewatching it, especially the first, like, six seasons or so, like, it's funny, but just the undercurrent of melancholy and yearning, like, this yearning, this sense, this kind of just quest for a kind of connection in the workplace between yeah. everyone that Michael like Michael longs for it and everyone kind of mocks him but everyone also kind of understands what he's looking for yeah. like that that sense of you know these uh, these older kinds of workplaces kind of collapsing you know just before and just after the recession I just feel like this this is this this is kind of both this and the office are trying to enact the same thing. Yeah, it's, it's, you can see them evolving in tandem. It's like an alternative history of how the office might have looked or what it might have been. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I loved it. Yeah. I thought it, it was great. Like workplace comedy, true crime, drama, yeah. investigation. Um, it just you know, took detective back, narrative. It took it's me all... back to two thousand and seven. Yeah. In a very kind of visceral way. Mm. Yeah. I, I loved in. it. Hard in. Hard in. Okay, so from diamonds back to rocks. Um, <laughs> the next show we're doing is uh, The Winter King, which is an adaptation of Bernard Cornwell's Arthurian saga. Drew, I'm going to be really honest. The Warlord Chronicles. The Warlord Chronicles. I remember, actually remember these when I worked in the bookshop. I, I'm going to go the honest route with this one. So um, every week, Drew and I divide up the shows, do two each, and kind of you know allocate who's going to introduce them. I could go through and read key plot summary points or give you an overview but that wouldn't be honest to my experience of this because i had absolutely no idea what was going on i was at say i had no idea it starts in the fifth century with um uther pendragon exiling arthur pendragon then it jumps the to another century the pendragon saga. Then, then we're in dumdonia <laughs> then arthur's arthur saves a kid from the saxons and then then arthur goes into exile and the saxon kid grows up can you, can you can you do any better? Can you do? There's, do, a, do there's a lot. There's a lot of proleptic moments that are a little confusing. Yeah, but can I ask you? First, did you watch it? Oh, absolutely, and uh, it is Dumnonia, not Dumdonia. Dumnonia, Dumnonia. Okay, can you you know, can you do me a favour and explain to me what was happening here? I, I I had no idea, and if you can't, that's fine. Then we're on the same page. Well, it is. No, he's, he's going. To, <laughs> he's going to Wikipedia. He's going to Wikipedia. I um, I I think this may be the most incoherent incompetent series we've done on the podcast could you could you could you follow any of it look i i could follow the the, the I, mean, broad, I, I could follow like the broad outline i could follow what was happening in the scene yeah. it's like oh someone's getting his head chopped off yeah i'll follow that yeah but beyond that <laughs> I, I like i mean i mean firstly like you know like it starts with like a 10 minute speech like there's all this kind of i mean it's it's really I thought this was genuinely confounding. Like genuinely confounding. I, I I had no idea what was happening after about ten minutes. Yeah, look, it's very it's very interesting. I mean, is it is it a historical text? Is it a is it a you know historical fiction? Because certainly it starts off like there's a very almost 
self-important grimness to it. Like, it's like, if you think this is going to be Camelot, <laughs> you've got another thing coming. Like, it's, it's, it's going for, like, intense historical veracity, I think. Yeah. But then there's all these fantasy elements that come in halfway yeah. through. I, I get a sense it's, it's you know, Arthurian legend by way of Game of Thrones. Well, it's definitely going for the next Game <laughs> of Thrones. But it just starts with this, like, 10-minute 10 minute speech, like, by Uther Pendragon, who I think is also the reporter from our archive choice this week I yeah think Eddie Marson yeah exactly Eddie Marson, Eddie Eddie Marson Mar- is dialing up to 100 <laughs> yeah and then <laughs> he's the king he's the, well, he's the king of of Dumnonia yeah Dumnonia um, um, but it seems like England was divided up into different almost chieftains yeah it reminds, it reminds me of that family guy bit where Peter's like you know it reminds me of my great 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 grandfather sir you know Peter Griffin who sailed to England to save England from the English <laughs> I mean I mean, yeah. just at a basic expository level, like you think about Game of Thrones, right? And like that first episode, I mean, episode, that first season, like it is a masterclass of exposition in moving between different narratives. I mean, this, I mean is this character just, building as well. Is this just me? Like, I, I, I'm not trying to be naff about it. I genuinely found this incoherent and like almost impossible to follow. Yeah, it was it was very difficult to follow. Yeah. There were lots of different moving pieces. Mm. Um, it was unclear exactly who was the protagonist, who mm. was the antagonist, mm. perhaps deliberately. Mm. Um, but the relationship between characters was very confusing, not helped by the fact that there was, you know, a series of very confusing proleptic moments mm. um, and characters, you know, going from boys all of a sudden to, mm. you know, to teenagers and I mean, to, it jumps, to fully grown men. It or, jumps dramatically in time and in space. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like gratingly monotonal as well. So like it's... It, 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 <laughs> there's, there's not even a different colour palette to distinguish no. the different timelines. And it's very... I mean, it's really ugly to look at, right? So like yeah, it's, it's, it either, it's either like handheld, bleary kind of handheld shots of, you know, close-ups of heads or it's like really grating hyperkinetic, both of which are techniques I kind of associate with a series or a director who doesn't really know what their voice is, right? Yeah. Like, it's the easiest thing in the world to put a camera in close to someone's head and shake it around or just be kind of just, you know, be hyperkinetic. And, you know, so, I mean, look, I'm sounding like really scared. I'm not normally scathing about shows yeah. in the podcast, but I, I thought this was... I thought this was awful. <laughs> I thought this was absolutely awful. And like, Mic drop. Just drop that mic. <laughs> yeah, this was... This was this was an ordeal to get through. And many times I considered not watching it and saying it I had, or I considered watching it on double speed. Or at, at, at the lowest point, like when all the stuff was happening with Merlin, like, like I, I considered actually just reading the plot synopsis. This was, this was, it, this it made is, me the hardest is, show to get through. It is dull. Yes. It is leaden. Yes. It is borderline it, incoherent. It, it looks like, I mean, I thought I was confused by the Sandman, but that, that I'm prepared because shout out to Phil Willis, friend of the podcast. Um, I had a talk with Phil Willis about the Sandman and I'm prepared to admit that the problem was me with the Sandman. Like right. I, I didn't know uh, the, I didn't know the mythology <laughs> properly. I didn't, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm still, not, I'm still thinking the problem was with it too. I, I'm, I'm not an expert. <laughs> Maybe the problem is me this time, but like I, I no. like Arthurian stuff. I tried. Like this was. No. no I, 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 I was. At, I was all at sea. Yes. This is <laughs> also. Know. This is also a show that, you know, suggests, you know, opens just immediately after a big budget battle. Yep. And then you know Arthur or whoever's meant to be the protagonist mm. is wandering through towns that have just been ransacked mm. in obviously a, a serious battle. Maybe it just doesn't feel like this has the courage or the budget to actually stage a proper battle. But you're very right. Like, like that's true. Like, the pacing is very strange. So, so it's like the opening of the episode feels like the closing of an episode. Yes. And then you have this whole, and then it starts in media rest in the worst possible in, incoherent in the, way. In the worst possible, way. and then and then it starts again several times, right? And like, 
you know, this is something that is sometimes a feature of fantasy shows, right? The world is so big. It's like something, something like, say, Lord of the Rings series. I didn't fully understand everything that was happening there. I didn't have the full palette. But there was a momentum that was kind of accommodating if you weren't a specialist, right? Whereas mm. here, it, just, it is so opaque. And, you know, there is something, too, about, like, it, it shifts so vertiginously between, like, this, this very kind of strident, like... You know, this is the real Arthur. You know, if you want Camelot, go and watch the musical. Yeah. Um, but then, like, you know, really fant- fantastic stuff as well and counter-historical stuff. So it's just the whole thing is kind of, ugh. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. I guess what you describe it, you know, Game of Thrones is a kind of gritty, you know, historical realism, mm. you know, in in science fiction. Uh, but I don't think it's... That, fantasy, that is yeah. even... Oh yeah, in fantasy, mm. but I don't think even that's necessarily carried through. Like it doesn't have the amorality of Game of Thrones. No, I mean it's um, completely conventional yes. and quite sentimental. Yes, like the way in which yes. it's played out. Like the characters are basic. Yes, but it's presented. I mean, it's weird because it it presents itself as gritty, but it's not violent. There's no amoral characters. There's no complex characters. There's no really interesting historical intrigue. It's just like I mean, it, it's like watching paint dry on <laughs> or like lead paint. <laughs> I mean, so this is. Yeah, can you ma- can you imagine watching ten episodes of this? Well, you'd have to. I mean, you didn't even watch one. Like, imagine watching <laughs> imagine watching ten episodes of this. Really? I feel like convinced you've watched this. I can tell you a lot about Dumnonia. I just I, I, <laughs> don't I, don't don't trust those Silurians. So do not trust those Silurians. Can we, can we just quickly, as far as you can throw them? Can we quickly? I, I genuinely didn't understand. So so Dumnonia was England. It was being no, invaded. No, it's a part of England. Part of England. It was in being invaded by the Saxons. The Saxons, yeah. But they're a different part of the England. Saxon invasion. No, no, they from uh, mainland <laughs> continental Europe. I mean, I. I know what the Saxon invasion is. As someone is. who is both Anglo and Saxon, Billy, I yeah. think I can speak with some authority on this point. It's just like it's just like blah blah blah, old English, blah blah blah. Like yeah, oh. part, of me, part of me got thinking, you know, why is Bernard Cornwall's The Warlord Chronicle novels popular, and why why uh, you know a loose reimagining of the Arthurian legend now? What resonance or relevance does it have in this day and age? And what? it got me thinking about Brexit. Yeah, white pride. <laughs> got me thinking about Brexit. Yep. And the idea being, despite the fact the Warlord Chronicles are actually written well in advance of Brexit, yeah. um, you know, why are we revisiting these these legends? And um, I, there was something there was something interesting conceptually about the idea of you know nationhood being an imagined community. I mean, it just it and, just it just seemed to me like fantasy is white nationalism, right? And, <laughs> I mean, this is a kind of this, this is like a resurgence of nativism, but this is a nativism that's you know. Not su- not sustainable or supportable racially. Well, there's, there's a lot of like colorblind casting well, here, which suggests that you know Britain, you know, as a, a you know uh, hermetic island, can't mm-hmm. be sealed off in in racial terms. So it's got to be sealed, but nonetheless, it can be sealed off in in other sort of strange nativist terms. So here, there's there's I don't know, there's some weird elusive engagement with Brexit. I don't think it's necessarily coherent, but. There's I mean, I, I just, let's just take things down a notch a little bit. And that's very high content. I mean, this feels like it's trying to satisfy two different demographics, right? A demographic that wants proper diversity, Merlin's black in this, and a demographic that likes fantasy because of white nationhood. And those two things, I mean, there's just there's just an in, inherent tension there, which makes the show maybe interesting, but also jarring. Mm. I mean, this is the kind of show that is going to get, it is, it is being review bombed by like angry fantasy fans because not all the characters are white. Like yeah, it's, it's that yeah. kind of show. It's got that, it's got that intent. I'm not, I'm not advocating true, that. True, But I guess just like something like Brexit, it's not entirely reducible to, to white nationalism given the the nature of, sure. of modern Britain. So but, but, the suggestion or, or, but, of an enemy, but, but, an enemy within. But, or is it? 
is, is at some level that's what it's fundamentally about for the older people who voted against it. Well, there's a, there's a sense that there's a there's a, a you know a fear of, of immigration, but there's there's a there's a larger amorphous amorphous mm. fear here, and there's, there's almost I think you know what Brexit occurred was like fissures within within the country, and that's you know the Saxons here are a bit of a red herring, mm. um, and they don't pose as much of a threat as internal I'm, divisions. I'm 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 I'm, I'm, I'm going to pause this here because at first I'm not convinced <laughs> that you watched it, so you can you can talk about Brexit till the cows come home. I know that you didn't like it, and whatever what, 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 I'm just I'm just no 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 we're not we're not doing this Brexit we're not we're not doing I, I, I suspect that you watched half an hour of it given what you said earlier, so we're not going to have any Brexit. Brexit kind of reflection hey, on this. No, Billy, Billy, I can tell you all about. <laughs> he scrolls through Wikipedia. Various, various characters, including the character who is going to be a druid, but she was, she was, uh, and the you know the Agon of uh, Sagramor. Yep. <laughs> yeah. He's, so I, I put it to you that we're going to Brexit in lieu of you um, actually knowing the plot of the show. Um, in, in, so yeah, but don't you think the way I put it like it's like that, right? That you have this tension between. The diverse casting, which obviously I agree with, and the I mean, I'm, I'm not saying at all that yeah. the white the white nationhood thing is good, but there's, there's just a tension between that and the show. It's yeah. trying to address You've got two to know your cad was from your lad was. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, we can have we can have another we can have another Brexit podcast <laughs> whenever you want. Um, are, are you in or out? <laughs> well, this is this, I'm clearly out. This yeah. is This is terrible. This is awful. I think we have spent more than enough time on it. <laughs> Yeah, sorry. So back to the force shots. All right. I, I, yeah, it's true. So I had to pre- press the kill switch. Could not discuss the Winter King anymore. We can. There's executive decision. Um, let's get back to some diamonds. All right. So on to our archive corner choice, uh, or more, more accurately, my archive. And can choice. I say from the outset, Chef's Kiss. I mean, this is you, you hit it out of the park with this one. I'd never heard of it. Extraordinary. So red. Thank, thank you. No, thank you. That's all good. That's all good. Uh, so red writing is a, a British crime drama series. Uh, written by Tony Grissoni, based on the books of the same name by David Pierce. So the series actually comprises uh, four novels, although only the first, third and fourth became feature-length television episodes, which were structured as a trilogy. Red Riding in the Year of Our Lord 1974, (laughs) which is the one we profiled. Red Riding in the Year of Our Lord 1980, and Red Riding in the Year of Our Lord, 1983. So when's the fourth novel set? Is it set further in the future? I, I do not know that. Okay. Um, so they aired in the UK in uh, 2009, uh, but the th- these actual episodes were later released theatrically in the United States in early 2010. Mm-hmm. So they do have a, a, a cinematic quality oh, to them. absolutely. So the, the premise of this series is that it's basically fictionalised accounts of the investigation into the Yorkshire Ripper. Mm. And that that uh, investigation really uh, becomes much more prominent and connects up to some right. uh, the, the, the really, you know, uh, high-profile media, mediatised events uh, by the, the, ni- the early 1980s. So it's only in really in its incipient form here where they're identifying that they do have a serial killer on, on their hands. Um, so... The name, uh, Red Riding, is a reference to the murders and, as well as their location. Um, uh, the historic county of Yorkshire being traditionally divided into three mm. areas known as ridings. Mm. So our first particular series, set in 1974, um, is, is set in, in Yorkshire, in particular Leeds, Bradford, Halifax and West York, Yorkshire in particular. 
Now, what is interesting I was not sure about when I was watching them was to what extent this is factual, to what extent this is fictional. And it seems like it's about 50-50 or at least, you know, the, the broader context of this investigation is entirely factual. But the specific characters who are involved and the spin that it places is fictional. Hmm. But I think possibly speculatively fictional hmm. because there are suggestions that there was pretty deep-seated corruption hmm. in the Yorkshire police force that allowed... Um, well, that firstly, you know, allowed these killings to go on mm. for so long uh, uninterrupted, but also, you know, collapsed a lot of these serial killings, you know, or, or at least sheeted them home to one killer when mm. they were not necessarily, um, the evidence didn't necessarily support it. So um, critics dubbed this Yorkshire noir, mm. and I think that's certainly the case here. So a lot of the, the tropes of noir are present. We have, mm. you know, a a character who's the protagonist who's played by Andrew Garfield um, is a journalist but also also you know assumes the role of you know investigator and detective is he, in is, one is he originally British uh, think, Andrew Garfield yes yeah I mean so because he's I, I was trying to get a he- my head around his background he's born in Britain raised in America is he putting on an accent here or is this his real British accent so he or can he do he both is, seamlessly I think he is putting on more of a northern accent yeah as a lot of the, the cast here, which is obviously mm. a very distinctive, provincial, almost dialect mm. that they speak. Um, so I, I think there is... Yeah, he is English, and I think... But his accent is, oh. is you know, adjusted. Because his, his accent and, and his performance are just phenomenal yeah. in this. Yeah, I think, as, it's, I think, I think as are all the performances. Yeah, this, this, this may be the best thing I've seen him in. I mean, I really yeah. like him as an actor, but yeah. I think this is possibly his best performance yeah, I've seen. Yeah, he's wonderful. So he yeah. plays a, uh, a new, very young, he's very young Andrew Garfield here, mm. um, cub reporter for the Yorkshire Post. Mm. Um, he's sent in to investigate um, true crime, and he eventually... You know, comes across John Dawson, who's played by Sean Bean, mm. who's an unscrupulous local real estate developer. Who, I mean, there's a bit of a spoiler here, so just jump ahead ten or fifteen seconds if you don't want to. But who seems to die here, but turns out turns up as a protagonist in later films. Well, he's again, there's a there's a there's a gun there's a gunfight here, but what the consequences? Oh, of that okay, is, okay, interesting. Is, is not um, a bit of a red herring. Okay, all right. So he represents a group of local investors. Now. The paths of the journalist and the real estate developer intersect when uh, Eddie Dunford is investigating a series of missing or possibly murdered schoolgirls, uh, one of whom is found on Dawson's property. So Dawson has you know, tentacles of his business empire extending out to the local council and local police force as well. So a lot of this, um, this, this pilot concerns um, Eddie Dunford's investigation of these these murders and determining whether you know they're they're part of a broader pattern or whether they can be attributed to you know an emergent serial killer mm. what role the the west yorkshire police in particular are playing in in covering this up facilitating it whether they've got a financial stake in this as well and there's also just some great great local uh period detail mm. um, as well as historical detail as well mm. this is a series that has just a real authenticity about it mm. has, a, has a grunginess, a griminess, captures that 
that uh, dissolute, disillusioned, depressive period of English history, you know, stagflation, fun? post-industrial malaise. Mm. Um, well, I'll say it's funny, in the early two th- 2010s, they be, you know, 70s period pieces became all the rage and a very mm. a particularly plastic, artificial 70s kind of reigned in yeah. American and British cinema. But this predates that. This yes. is a more authentic, remembered, lived, kind of haunted kind yes. of 70s. Every shot just... Anyway, yeah, I agree that the period effect is extraordinary. Yes, yes. And like we were discussing a lot of the times with these serial killer narratives, that the serial killer always feels symptomatic. Mm. You know, they're symptomatic. Their, their crimes are in some, you know, provoked by, obviously, this, this down-at-heel, working-class... Sidebar, we both watched Manhunter last night yes. and were blown away <laughs> not having seen it for 15 years. This is in our, in our minds at the yeah. moment, these extraordinary yeah, genres of yeah. films. They're, they're a symptom of their society and also the, the, mm. the cityscape in particular, they mm. emerge like, you know, a shadow um, that, that reveals, um, haunts, you know, lingers on this, on the cityscape. And we did, we did watch a documentary on the, on the Yorkshire Ripper mm. case. And I think they made some great points about how he was able to target women who were forced out of destitution, lack of an adequate welfare system to, to sell their bodies, mm. but also in, in areas where, where were just not supervised. And mm. um, because of the moralism of the time as well, their crimes were actually applauded by mm. certain sectors of the media and possibly even the police force. Mm. And it wasn't really until um, the offending started to impinge on the middle class and, you know, you know pure mm. women, you know, mm. uh, normal women in inverted commas, that, that this actually, you know, elevated, you know, to the, the, sort, of, the sort of pitch that it should have been. Mm. Um, initially so consistent with that there's a lot of characters here um who are who are downtrodden marginalized um and some in terms of uh, sexuality Mm. so there's there's a character who plays a a rent boy there's another journalist who plays uh you know uh clearly a a homosexual but who's you know having to conceal closeted as uh, for his nature over there so there's there's a real suggestion Mm. here that there's a there's a broader, you know, psychological malaise that mm. that pairs, that parallels this this post-industrial decline, mm. and um, facilitates, you know, the, these these killings and possibly even masks, you know, other other other, you know, examples of serious, you know, malfeasance by the police mm. as well. So mm. I think it captures this in just the most, you know, wonderful noirish way. I mean, look, I I agree. I mean, this. This, I thought, was one of the best archive shows we've done. I mean, to me, it felt like watching a great lost 70s film. Yeah. Like it, or like, and especially, it felt drawn from the playbook of someone like Alan J. Pakula. Mm. Like, you've got just that 70s vibe where you have brutalist buildings, kind of, but an ethereal sense of space, and above all, this kind of hush. Yeah. Like, there's this, there's this silence that kind of percolates throughout the whole, the whole film that's... It's, it's like this... It's like the silence of white noise. Like there's always there's often a source of white noise in the background. It's like a silence that's almost tactile. Yeah. You can almost touch or a silence you can almost hear that suggests these kind of machinations that are going on. And I was I was trying to kind of think that it's that's one of my favorite things in 70s cinema that silence. I kind of feel like it's you know, like that Deleuzean idea of societies of enclosure and societies of control. So Deleuze says that in the 70s and 80s, we move from these old-fashioned forms of control, like what he calls enclosed spaces of control, like the school, the prison, the factory, to more distributed 
kind of ambient, omniscient forms of surveillance. And I feel like that hush captures that. And you see something like that happening here. So, you know, like on the one hand, the town here is full of industrial spaces. But you also have like something we haven't mentioned is like the whole plot revolves around the construction of a new type of space. So Mm. at the heart of the narrative is this business magnate played by Sean Bean, who's collaborating with the local police force to build the area's first shopping mall. Mm. And this shopping mall is the first of its kind in the area. It's situated at a highway interchange. And the highway interchange has previously been the kind of the home, I guess, of a Romany encampment. So it does have this kind of quite authentic, organic community, but they're all being kind of expelled. And so you have this new kind of conjunction of freeway and mall. And everything in... The film revolves around that so like the murders the conspiracy the persecution the surveillance and it turns out that the police are kind of like major investors in it so it's like that that society of control thing whereas instead of the police controlling people or the kind of you know the system controlling people through prisons or schools you have this this more elusive kind of spatial control that's encapsulated in that highway shopping mall nexus and that that to me is what the silence is like it's a silence of this this new kind of watchfulness and like there's a great scene there's a great moment towards the end where this what you know what do you call it society of control whatever you call this new system of control it kind of dissolves the whole spatial scheme of the film so the andrew garfield character is grabbed like by the business and henchman suddenly finds himself in this kind of empty factory that's been darkened and remade as a kind of torture space and then as as abruptly as the torture starts he finds himself in a van being tortured again then just flung out into this empty Yorkshire landscape so it's like this shift in it's this shift in what it means to be controlled I feel in these films Mm. this kind of instead of you know what I mean like instead of like direct centralised institutionalised control to a more Mm. ambient control Mm. that you only sense through a particular kind of silence yeah a particular hush don't you think yeah and I think yeah further to the the hush is the atrophying of the 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 ties that bind community together yes Yes. and in the wake of that there's Mm. the the corporatisation of of communal space yes which is represented by this that shift this from, yeah so romany shopping center yeah exactly and, yeah and but it, also just in the society in the, in the society itself i mean that the pub yeah, there's, a, there's a pub but the, you know the church is is a debased institution yes. at least in this in this um and this this setting these these uh, a lot of it takes place in former industrial mm. um communities in which the the, the factory that's you know the, the raison d'etre for these communities is shut mm. so they're just left there you know you know, basically, you know, jettisoned mm. from this this you know industrial community, and it's like and it's like of. this shopping centre and f- this shopping centre freeway nexus. Like, it's not built in this episode, but it's like there on the horizon. It's like it's it's not built yet, but it's already watching everyone, yes, and already controlling everyone. And there's it's like it's like it has. It reminds me, you know, how in Tenet, um, you know, the Christopher Nolan film, the characters start to discover relics from a future war yeah like here there's all these little emblems of this new control society so the sean bean character lives in this really kind of futuristic house and in fact when they're outside the house for the first time there's this great bit where the kind of closeted gay detective says to andrew garfield all great houses are like crimes yes so like and that house becomes like so an object that circulates throughout the narrative 
is an invitation to a party at this house with a picture of the house on it. So that like that invitation with the picture of the house, there's also a scale model of the shopping mall, like these little spatial tokens, the invitation, the scale model, they're like, they're like emblems or avatars or relics from the shopping mall freeway complex that is to be. Yes. So it's like, it just, it's, it's, it's very, it just, I think that's what it is. Like, it's like this, this silence, this prescience, this pregnant hush that just makes you aware that a new dispersed ambient control is perhaps already around us, but you can't quite put, and it makes sense that in this series, it's distributed across three films. And something I think is incredible because it only has to be the first film in a trilogy, it doesn't really resolve it. It kind of ends, it immerses you deep in that silence and then it just kind of ends in a way that I just thought was extraordinary. Like I, I loved it. Yeah. I, I was just, I was in in transpired mm, mm. every shot. Yeah, and uh, I think the the blend of, of facts and fiction here, mm. um, like a lot of great crime texts, and mm. you know, thinking of James Elroy, mm. um, it's it just has an extraordinary authenticity. It, it, yes, it makes it seem it it feels lived in. Yes, and it feels it feels like the characters, like the screenwriters, are remembering and haunted by real places rather than say like it's it's a random comparison but like rather than say something like american hustle where it's just it's very consciously creating an artificial past this feels like it's like it's set in those parts of yorkshire that the 70s never really left yes you know know, even in sydney sometimes you'll walk like i had it today i went to leichhardt market town um and i just was walking through the car park and i turned a corner and all of a sudden the car park was a 70s space again. Yeah. Like, you know, you just those pockets of the past, those pools, True. place where the past pools, like it's like this is set in those places. True. Like, I'm just thinking the great scene where the last time Andrew Garfield sees a closeted reporter, the closeted reporter has just received a death threat and they're parting in a car park. Yes. And just that scene, it feels like that car park probably looks exactly like that even now. It's like this pool. It's often car parks. Yes. This pool of the 70s that lingers. Yes. Unresolved. Yes. Yes, and yeah, I think there's I think there's that sense, you know, I, I think a lot of these crimes that it, it's based on, there's still doubt as mm. to, you know, the the actual, you know, whether the perpetrator was caught or whether there was, you know, a false attribution of blame. And there's, there's something in there, isn't it? I mean, like you saying that makes you think, I mean, part of the reason that there's something so evocative or at least resonant about unsolved crimes is that the time of the crime never goes. Mm. It's like I've been reading a lot recently about like the Colonial Parkway crimes. I've listened to a podcast on it and it resonates with me because I was there with my family um, driving the Colonial Parkway at the time these happened, right? So it's, it's, it's something which always resonates with me. And just, it's like those crimes which took place in the 80s and 90s, the parkway, there are parts of the parkway that are still stuck in the 80s and 90s yes. because those crimes had never... Yeah, that's exactly what it is. When a crime is unresolved, the past lingers. Yes. Yeah. And yes. I love that thing you said when you're talking about burden of proof. Like, I love that take you had that when a crime is unsolved, every space becomes liminal. Yes. And that's that's kind of it. Yeah. Temporally liminal. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it also makes you realise, you know, Yorkshire, constructs Yorkshire as this, you know, frontier. Mm, the north. Uh, the north, yeah. There's a very mm. clear sense of, you know, tribal identity mm. and tribalism mm. in a good way, not in a King Arthur way. Yeah. Um, but, um, and Andrew Garfield being an outsider in this community, mm. um, navigating his way through there, you know, yes. has all those kind of, you know, they're kind of, they're Chandlerian, kind of... you know, descent type narratives that I think are always 
really interesting. Yes, and, and, and their paranoia about him, like that yeah. sense he comes, like the moment he arrives, right, there's a sense that it's almost like a J.G. Ballard novel when a character arrives in some community yeah. that's got Well, he this, arrives from the future. He arrives from the future. From, that's exactly from it. From London. That's yeah. exactly it. That's exactly it. So yeah. I just... I, like I said, I'd never heard of it. I just thought this was stunning. So I'm curious, just, you know, it's a bit of a side thing, but do the, do the second and third films live up to it? The second film is the best. Wow. It's yeah. better than the first. Yep. Wow. Yeah. And the third one is, is it's still pretty good. Mm. Um, it ties everything together. So um, the indeterminacy of that and the, the evocative indeterminacy of this, this one, the yep. second one, I think are strengths. Yeah. So when you get some resolution... It, you know, dispels a little bit, but still, it's still very much worth watching. Because these new forms of ambient control, I mean, I feel like what defines them above all is instead of being in, you know, institutionalized, they emerge. Yes. So an emergent narrative works so well. So you can see why the first and second in the trilogy might capture it. Yes. Um, but look, I'm a hardy, and I'm gonna. I was actually gonna suggest that we watch all three of them together, but I, you, I realised you've watched them now. Um, I loved it. Uh, yeah, it was incredible. All right, what's your what's your choice, Timmy? So so much did I love Red Riding that I just I wanted to watch something that would just immerse us back because you know I love that kind of British television series like moody, melancholy, haunted by the past. I was originally going to go with Happy Valley, but I thought we've both seen it; it's too recent. We'll come back to another time. So I thought I'd go back to a show that I, I watched on VHS, you know, twenty years ago, and was just absolutely taken by. And I just I I want to see if it lives up to it. Cracker. The Robbie Coltrane series, right? Where he plays a forensic. He, he, he plays a friend. Have you seen? He plays like a forensic psychologist by day and a gambling addict by night. No, I have not seen it. Oh, incredible! It's, it's one of the things that made Robbie Coltrane famous. And the series, the seasons have an unusual structure in that each season only has about two or three stories with multiple episodes for each. So the pilot we watch is just the first part of one of the stories, uh, directed by Michael, Michael Winterbottom as well. Oh. So the, and I, one of the reasons I, I thought of it is that I was so curious about what this Red Riding director had directed and indeed he directed some of Cracker. Oh, so there's right, a continuity okay. there. Makes sense. Yeah, so Makes sense. there are a few other... I feel like so much... Did I love about Red Riding that maybe for the next couple of weeks my archive will be Moody British, <laughs> Moody British, but hey, yeah, Moody British, uh, Moody British procedurals. I'm all in. Yep. Okay. So let's let's do Cracker next week, and um, I, I feel like we had some rocks this week, but this show was such a diamond. So thank you <laughs> yeah. for that. Thank yeah. you for that. It made up for it. All good. Cool. I'm Billy. I'm Drew. That was Pilot Club. <laughs>